All right. Awesome. That is a hard act to follow, but what a blessing. Thank you guys so much for uh, putting that together, and thank you for uh, kids for being part of that. Uh, welcome again to Easter 2020, and certainly this is not normal, right? This is not at all what we expected. This is not routine or established or ordinary. Our world is in a place of change, and some I know some of our lives can be feeling kind of uncertain. Some of our hearts are feeling a little bit unsettled and people are asking, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month and what's the future really going to look like when we come out of this. And yet I think it's on a morning like this morning um, when the voice of the empty tomb just cries out that much more clearly because in the middle of all of this, we can rest in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, right? In a world that's constantly shifting and always changing, we can celebrate the God who isn't. And as we've said, you know, the church buildings may be empty today, but so is the tomb. And I think today the, the cross of Jesus is lifted extra high because that stone is still rolled away. Jesus is still risen from the dead. He's still enthroned in heaven. And on a day like today, you know, God's goodness and his faithfulness and his grace and his mercy, his great love for us, none of those things have changed in the slightest. And there still is something that is so unique and so special and so supernatural that I believe he wants to do in each of our hearts and in our lives, even as we gather together virtually this morning. You know, for those of you maybe who are just uh, checking this out, maybe those of you who aren't familiar with this whole God thing or this Easter morning idea, um, it might be new to you. It might be kind of unknown to you in a real personal way. But uh, we just want to say to you that God wants to meet you here as well. And he wants to meet you right where you are. He wants to meet all of us wherever it is that we are in the midst of maybe doubt or uncertainty or anxiety, or maybe it's just in the midst of joy, of celebration and praise. Whatever it is that we're feeling this morning, uh, the God of the universe is here to meet with us and to do a special supernatural work today. So let's pray, and then we're going to look uh, at some things that the Bible has to say. So, Father, we thank you so much for this morning, and we do thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to get together. Lord, we thank you for what we celebrate. We thank you for who we celebrate this morning. And Lord, we pray as we look to the Bible, Lord, as we go to the scriptures, as we look into your word today, Lord, that you would speak to each one of our hearts. Lord, we pray that your spirit would do that work that only he can do. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, of course, today, here we are gathered together along with Christians all over the planet. And though we're separated physically, we are so united spiritually. We're celebrating what is the culmination of a series of the three greatest events, we might say, in all of human history. Right? The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the full and satisfying payment for our sins, followed, of course, by his burial there in the garden tomb, and then the capstone we celebrate this morning, his triumphant 
resurrection from the dead there on the third day. And I have to think as I was thinking about this, if I weren't a Christian, and maybe even for some of you who aren't yet Christians, one of the questions I would have concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, why in the world is this so important? Why is it so important to Christians? Why is it so important to God? Why wasn't it simply sufficient for Jesus just to die as a sacrifice, right? To pay that penalty for our sins. But why was it also so necessary for Jesus to rise again from the dead? And of course, there are so many solid and so many important reasons for the resurrection of Jesus, doctrinally and theologically and philosophically, fundamentally to our faith. But we'd like this morning just to focus on just one of those many reasons for the resurrections. And it's a reason that Peter presents to us in our very short text for this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look just at verses 3 through six. So if you head all the way to the back of the Bible, Revelation, and then just go to the left, a handful of books, and you'll run right in to First Peter. So Simon Peter, of course, this beloved apostle who we've been studying for so long on Sunday mornings, first in the book of Matthew, and then more recently as we've been going through the book of Acts, he was one of the very first followers of Jesus. He was one of the three most intimate disciples of Jesus. He was one of the primary leaders there of the early church, and certainly one of the first and the most prominent voices for the church, who then in his later life, we know he wrote two letters to the church. And he wrote to the church to try to encourage them in their faith and in all that they had in the Lord Jesus. And so it's in the third verse of his first letter to the church in chapter one. He greets the saints in verses one and two, and he says, he finishes off in verse two by saying, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And then he begins this letter of encouragement with kind of an overwhelming, an overflowing of praise and thanksgiving that we see is rooted deeply in the resurrection. He says in verse three, of First Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So I love the way that Peter starts out here at the foundation of everything that the Lord has done for us. Peter proclaims here primarily, right, the very first point that he makes in the very first letter that he writes is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead in order to provide mankind collectively and in order to provide you and me individually with a living hope. Now that in and of itself certainly sounds pretty good, I think, from any perspective. And yet, from a biblical perspective, it is even better than it sounds. And it's probably worthwhile for us just to take a moment to consider the meaning of hope as it's really used 
in the Bible because the word hope, and I think the concept of hope in our culture today, we kind of use it in a way that it carries with it the idea of something that we want to be true, but kind of in the midst of uncertainty about some specific situation. We say that we hope that a certain place we're going is maybe not going to be too crowded, or we hope that traffic's not going to be too bad on the way to work. We hope that our flight is going to arrive on time, and maybe we really hope that they're going to have toilet paper at the store this <laughs> afternoon, right? But we use this word hope in these kinds of situations because we're not certain at all that any of these things are actually going to be true. But we hope, right? We, we wish or we want that they may possibly be true. We have no control over it. We have no expectation of it. I love what one little boy said. He said that hope is wishing for something you know ain't going to happen. And so often, that's the way we kind of use it. And yet, the word hope that Peter uses here in verse 3 which he says is what the resurrection provides for us, in the original language of the New Testament, which was Greek, it doesn't at all carry with it a single element of any kind of uncertainty. And in fact, rather, it means to anticipate with a confident expectation. And so Peter uses this specific wording, I think, to communicate specifically there is no sense of uncertainty here. Because when we hope in something that God has promised, then that promise is as sure as the one who promised it. And I think it's especially important, it's interesting to note that Peter goes even further trying to mute, communicate this reality to us because, again, he could not have used a stronger word to describe the specific type of hope that a Christian has where he says there that it's a living hope. Because understand, the word that he uses there for living in verse 3 it's a word that's used repeatedly throughout the New Testament to describe the God of the Bible as the living God. So in other words, whatever this hope is that Peter's describing for us here, I think that it's firmly in Peter's mind, and I think that he would intend that it be firmly in our minds, that this hope is as alive and it is as sure as God Almighty is alive and sure. That's the kind of hope that Peter says the resurrection provides for us. You simply cannot declare something to be more sure, at least not in the language that you use, than Peter has described here for us in the language he uses. Because this was a subject that Peter was especially passionate about. And we've seen and we've said that the Apostle Paul is often called the Apostle of Grace because he articulates more clearly than any other of the New Testament writers this gospel of the grace of God. We know that the Apostle John is known both in his personality and in his writings as the Apostle of Love. And you guessed it, Peter. What we find is that Peter is the Apostle of Hope 
because more than anyone else, Peter presses the importance of this foundation of our hope as what helps us to persevere. And all of us certainly can acknowledge the necessity of hope in our lives. It's of such vital importance, the power of hope. There's mountains of research, even within the secular social sciences communities, just confirming the necessity of hope in human beings generally. And I think that's why it's so important to note Peter isn't simply talking about the idea of hope in a general sense, but in this very specific sense when he talks about this living hope. So what in the world is a living hope? Well, most simply, a living hope is a hope that has conquered death. It's a hope that a person possesses who doesn't fear death. It's a hope that someone possesses who can look at death as a defeated enemy. It's a hope that is confident that it possesses in some way an absolute victory over death. And Peter further tells us here in verse 3 what the source is specifically of the foundation of this living hope. Look at again what it says there in verse 3. Peter says that this specific and living hope that a Christian has in the face of death rests firmly and wonderfully, it says, upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because it's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it reveals to us the absolute power and the absolute authority and the absolute victory that Jesus has over this thing called death, over this great ultimate enemy of mankind. There have been studies, there have been authors, both both ancient and modern, who've long listed death as the single greatest fear faced by the majority of people. And a significant number of people, apparently, who suffer from death anxiety, which can be so debilitating that they try to treat it using you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that. It was Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, who wrote that it, uh, it is possible to provide security against other ills, but as far as death is concerned, we men live in a city without walls. So people feel vulnerable, they feel unprotected, they feel very unsure about the reality of what lies beyond. And certainly at a time like we're experiencing now, people feel that what walls they thought were in place, securely protecting them, may not have been as quite as secure as they once imagined. And so their fear and their anxiety around the possibility of death increases. And yet Jesus declares victory over all of that. And he does it here through the most confirming and the most culminating sign of his entire ministry. You can read the Gospels. You can see that all throughout his three-year public ministry, the religious leaders opposed Jesus, right? Right and left, coming and going, they were constantly looking for ways to trip him up and to 
tear him down, if you would. And on one occasion, which you remember from Matthew chapter 12, and then again even in Matthew 16, remember when the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him for a sign. They ask him for a sign to prove his claims to be the Messiah, a sign to further prove his claims to be divine, that he was the son of God and that he claimed to be equal with God. And of course, them asking for this is ironic because his entire ministry amongst the people had been filled with these sorts of confirming miraculous signs. We know that the blind were seeing and the lame were walking and the deaf were hearing and lepers were cleansed and the sick were healed and even the dead had been raised. And we see that the people were having the good news of the gospel of the kingdom preached to them. And all of these were prophecies which pointed to the coming Messiah and were fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Jesus. The whole of the land of Israel had been filled with just these sorts of signs. And yet here come these religious leaders, the enemies of Jesus, demanding yet again that he prove himself to them. And so finally, in response to them, He says this in Matthew chapter 12. He says that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what was the sign that Jesus said would be given? It was the sign of his coming death, burial, and resurrection. So he was pointing them to something they knew, pointing them to the fact that the story of Jonah in this particular way was a picture of Jesus. That Jesus would be three days and three nights only in the earth that death would not be able to hold him there, and that this would be the ultimate sign, his victory over the ultimate fear of death. And one of the things I think we, we can't miss is that one of the things that Jesus is communicating here, both to the religious leaders and certainly to us as well, is the importance of not placing our faith or of not putting our trust into any religion or philosophy or savior or some kind of salvation or a belief system that cannot or has not also conquered this greatest enemy of mankind called death. And we all know in this world that we live in, there's no shortage of men and women who will not hesitate to speak very eloquently and convincingly and even authoritatively about any number of subjects, including anything and everything in life, including life itself, including death and including eternity. And yet, if they haven't also conquered death, then they're not to be trusted. And so Jesus not only spoke authoritatively about life and death, but then he proceeded to demonstrate that absolute authority over those things through his resurrection. And the reason that Jesus can give this everlasting life to us 
is that he has defeated death and he again has absolute authority over it. And yet I think for us this morning, the real wonder in this to, to pause and to consider together is not simply that he conquered death, but that he also has found a way to share that victory with us. And further, the fact that the Bible reveals that Jesus has a desire, he's actually eager to do exactly that for each and every one of us this morning. And this is why I think we need to notice on this Easter morning that Peter explains to us in this very same verse how exactly it is that each and every one of us can come to possess this living hope and how we can make it our own today. And he declares here, still in verse 3, that this happens because we have been begotten again. Right? God has begotten us again to this living hope. And that phrase there, begotten again, literally means born again. Right? God has born us again into this living hope. It's being born again that both produces and it, it introduces this living hope into our lives. And of course, this language that Peter uses takes us right back to the most famous, the most evangelistic of conversations, the most famous salvation encounter recorded anywhere in the Bible. Of course, the conversation in John chapter 3 between Jesus and an already very religious man named Nicodemus. And you remember that Nicodemus, Jesus says to him at the beginning of their encounter, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then we sort of see the wheels turning as Nicodemus thinks of this and, and tries to work this out in his mind in purely a, a physical, sort of a natural sense. And then he goes on to ask a very logical question in John 3, chapter, uh, John 3 verse 4. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then Jesus replies to him in verse 5, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So what does it mean to be born again, the way Jesus describes it here? Well, most simply, it speaks of a spiritual birth. So every single one of us listening today, we've been born physically. And yet Jesus also said that we each need also to be born, to have a, a spiritual birth in order to be able to have a spiritual relationship with God. And so that raises, of course, the question, well, then how? How can we be born again? And so, not, so just later in that very same conversation, Jesus explains exactly this. And he speaks what are the most well-known words in the Bible, which just happen to concern exactly how one can be born again. In John 3.16, 
Jesus declares that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is how a person is born again. And that verse, those words from Jesus are the single most important words that any human being will ever hear in the course of their lifetime. And that includes you, and it includes me this morning. To hear that God so loved the world, which includes you. That he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus. That whoever, that's us again, believes or trusts in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what the Bible explains is that we become born again by accepting God's assessment of us, right? That we are sinners and that we are in need of a Savior. And then we need to be willing to repent or to turn away from our sin and our self-will in our life. We need to then put our faith in Jesus Christ that he can provide to us that forgiveness that we need. And when a person trusts in Jesus in this way for the forgiveness of their sins, that's when the single greatest miracle known to mankind occurs. That's when God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit then comes into our lives and into us and we are born again. That's the, this experience of this spiritual birth that is every bit as real as was our physical birth. Not only do we receive the forgiveness of sins, but now we've been provided with the capacity to have a relationship with God. We've been given this eternal reality personally of everlasting life and understanding that victory over death we're born again, right? We're begotten again. And as Peter explains, we're begotten again to an inheritance incorruptible, this is verse 4, and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only... Does Peter tell us that our hope is a living hope? But here he also says that it's a lasting hope. So as Christians, we don't work for this hope, but it's provided to us as a part of our spiritual birthright. It's given to us as an inheritance that is as safe and it's as secure as the one who's giving it. He says it's reserved in heaven. It's kept in a place where it can't decay. It can't be defiled. It can't lose its beauty and its delight. What's interesting, I think, if you've ever noticed that oftentimes human hope can fade. Unlike this living hope that is ours in Christ, human hope tends to get weaker and weaker and sometimes dimmer and dimmer and finally dies out. Sometimes people find that the kind of the further down the road we go of life, we start crossing off all the things that we thought we might do or the things that we thought we might be, and we start to lose 
hope for the future. And yet in the economy of heaven, right, in our new lives in Christ, we find the opposite to be true. The further down the road that we walk with Jesus, the more we experience of Jesus, the more we grow in our intimacy with Jesus, the more we realize that our hope never did lie on this earth at all. It never did lie in anything we might accomplish or anything we might produce or anything we might become, but it lies firmly embedded in heaven with Jesus. And rather than our human hope fading away or diminishing, our living hope actually grows and increases. So we don't need to be a people who wrestle with hopelessness because our true hope, it's not only safe for us in heaven, but it's here and it's available to us even now today. Because I think it's equally important on a day like today to realize that for the Christian, Everlasting life and this living hope that comes with this new resurrection life, it does not begin when we die, but it's something that we possess right now. And of course, you remember the story in John chapter 11, the conversation that Jesus had with Martha. Her brother Lazarus had just died and had been laid there to rest in the tomb. And Jesus says to her, he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then we remember what Jesus said to her so profoundly. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And then as if it couldn't get any better than that last statement, Jesus continues and he says that whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And of course, we notice that when Jesus declares himself to be the resurrection and the life, what he's not saying is that he knows the way to everlasting life or that he knows the secret of everlasting life or that he's going to point or even lead the way to everlasting life. He said that everlasting life and this victory over death are found in him. And that victory is accessed through this personal relationship with him and this connection to him. In other words, I think that Jesus is saying, look, resurrection and victory over death and the, this promise of eternal life, they're not something that's found in some future time or some event that's coming or some place that you arrive to, but they are found, Martha, in me. Here, now, and today. Jesus says, I'm not just some teacher that's speaking of resurrection. I'm not some guru who the, who's fascinated about resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I singularly am the author of resurrection. I'm the source of life because I alone have victory over death. And then, of course, he raises Lazarus from the dead. 
And Jesus was making this promise to Martha, and I think to every one of us now as Christians down through the ages, every one of us listening here this morning, that if you are alive and if you believe in Jesus, you will not only never taste death, but you also have his resurrection life and his resurrection power producing that that living, that lasting hope that's guaranteed by his resurrection. It's present in your life right now today because Jesus is present in your life right now, even today. And that's why Peter could write next in our last verse of the day. He says in verse six that in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So not only do we have this living hope, which is also a lasting hope, but we see here that it then becomes for us a lifting hope, right? It lifts us up. Even as we face all of the fallenness and all of the trial all of the uncertainty and anxiety that we know we will face in this life, Peter says that we can still greatly rejoice because all of the big issues, all of the eternal issues, all of the real life and death issues have already been taken care of. See, the ultimate enemy is powerless against us now. It has freed us from the bondage of the fear of death. And that is so much to be freed from that frees us up to face the things that life is going to throw our way. So very much unlike the, the diminishing dead hope of the world, we have this living, lasting, lifting hope that's energizing and it's alive and it's active in the soul of the believer and it is enough to carry us through whatever it is that we might be facing because do you know as we finish up this morning do you know to whom generally or in what context specifically that Peter wrote this letter Well, if we jump back up to the first couple verses, it tells us that it was written to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This letter was written to the Gentile Christian church Right, believers in Jesus who'd been scattered from their homes were living as foreigners and strangers all throughout this part of the Roman Empire at a time in history right around A.D. 64 when they were on the eve of what would be the greatest outbreak of persecution that the Christian church had known or would know on the eve of when this wicked, crazy Caesar Nero would step onto the scene and this persecution against Christians that had been simmering for some time would finally come to a full boil and it would result 
in the annihilation of what some estimate to be as many as six million Christians. We've heard the stories of them being lit like human candles to light up Caesar's nighttime garden parties or the way they were fed to lions to the delight of jeering crowds. They were singled out for their refusal to bow down and worship the emperor or the false gods of Rome. And so it's in anticipation of that and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Peter writes to these people, these people who were about to be understandably vulnerable to confusion and subject to depression and would question the reason why they were in this kind of trial and suffering. And so to these who are feeling so discouraged or displaced, or depressed, or in danger, Peter addresses the heart of the issue, and he says, stay hopeful. Stay hopeful because we have this living hope that reaches so far beyond even this life, and because it's based in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter would say precisely the same thing to us this morning. We may not, any of us, be facing a crazed Caesar Nero. Right? We may not be in danger of being fed to lions, and yet each and every one of us face uncertainty, and we probably struggle with some amount of anxiety, especially in the face of a disruption of everything we know like we're experiencing right now especially at those times where the strength and the stability of those walls that we thought were around us to protect us seem to be failing. And yet, it's during a time like this, and it's in the midst of an experience like this, that the, it, this is such a critical time for us because it forces us to really examine where our hope actually lies. Is it a living hope? Is it a lasting hope? And does that hope have the power to lift us in the face of this kind of difficulty? And if you don't have that kind of hope this morning, you can have it. Because God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. You can be born again. You can be begotten again to this living hope. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that we celebrate Jesus' victory over death. Lord, that triumph of the resurrection, Lord, we, we celebrate and we praise you, Lord, just as Peter did, for the living hope that the resurrection provides for us, Lord. We thank you for what it means to us, Lord. We do thank you for the way that it lifts us out of um, trial and trouble and difficulty that we're experiencing. And Father, we collectively pray, if there are those who are listening this morning who don't yet know this hope, who don't have this kind of a living hope, Lord, who don't have the presence of Jesus in their life providing this to them even now. 
Father, we pray that your spirit would reach in, Lord, that you'd be doing a deep work in their hearts even right now. And if that's any of you and you know that the Lord is speaking to you, Lord, you, f- you feel the spirit speaking to your heart and you respond saying, I, I want this kind of a living hope. I want this kind of an intimate connection with God and with Jesus. All you need to do this morning is to ask in your heart to be forgiven of your sins, to be forgiven of your independence and your self-will against God. Be willing to turn from those things and ask Jesus to forgive you. He will come into your life. He will take control of it. And he will produce within you this living hope. And you can do that even now this morning. There are no special words to say. Simply communicate that with the Lord even now and you will be born again. For the rest of us, Lord, we thank you so much for this day. And again, Lord, in the midst of this unprecedented time, we thank you that we're even able to still gather the way we are able to gather. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be doing a work today that is as unprecedented as as the times we're living in. Father, we know that you can do it. We know that you can do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could even ask or think. And Lord, we pray that you would do that even now, even here today. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. Hey, a couple of encouragements. If if you prayed in your heart today to receive the Lord, we would love to know about that, not simply because we... Uh, are asking you to join the church or anything like that. We just want to be here to encourage you and to support you and to help get you pointed in the right direction. You can email us uh, from the church website. You can type something there into the YouTube chat and just ask for one of us to to reach out to you. Um, We're here. We're here to minister to you. And for the rest of you, though we can't be here to meet together in person Um, Take some extra time today to greet one another, Uh, text people, uh, get on the phone, call them, maybe make a Zoom call or a FaceTime call and and really share in the celebration of what it is that the Lord uh, has done today and the great miraculous work that he has worked and the way that it's really impacted 
uh, each and every one of us. So we're super blessed that you were with us today. There's actually one more uh, wonderful worship song you are not going to want to miss. So we're going to go to that now and let uh, them close out uh, the service. And uh, we just thank you again. And uh, God bless you in Jesus' name.